Hey, happy Tuesday, everyone, and welcome back to the I-5 Corridor's Traffic Report. Tyson Alger here, joined by Shane Hoffman. Shane, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing all right. The weather's been good. Um, sports in this state all of a sudden have been a little bit more exciting, it feels like, for better or worse. Um, you, you, must have, yeah, you must have watched the, the Blazers-Sixers game last night. That's what you're yes, talking about, Yes, right? exactly <laughs> what I'm referring to, the uh, Embiid-less uh, Sixers game in the town, yes. Um. It's pretty crazy. I was I was out of town for the weekend. I was taking care of a couple family things, and I when I left, it was just right out of the. It had been frozen here for like a week and a half. I think it was still like forty two, forty three degrees. And then over the weekend, I start seeing these tweets roll in of like, "God bless Eugene," <laughs> you know, like it was like you know sixty five, seventy degrees, just completely out of nowhere. You went down to Eugene on Saturday for the Arizona game. How kind of kind of give me a little bit of a not the game scene, but just a gift of a day like that in terms of weather-wise. Well, it's funny because on Saturday, it actually wasn't amazing in Eugene. It was raining for a majority of the day. Going down I-5, it was pouring there on both going there and on the way back. One of those nice white-knuckle um, drives. Oh, yeah. I wasn't the one driving, but my buddy was absolutely white-knuckling. Um, just kind of quiet, like didn't want to contribute too much to the conversations because he was so focused <laughs> on seeing what was in front of him with like big semi-trucks crossing. Um, so, yeah, it was a little bit, it, but it was it was warm and it was definitely, there was definitely a buzz, that's for sure. In the air, that is. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. I was um, working. Yeah. So so we we have we have some hoops to talk about. We have some true detective to talk about. But I think we because it's been a couple of weeks since we've really kind of dived into football here. Um we have a week before signing day. It's kind of the anticlimactic signing day these days, with um, you know, the ducks obviously shoring up the majority of their class back in September, or sorry, back in December. But we've definitely kind of it seen might as well trickles. be September at this point. I mean, <laughs> I, I, at this point, just keep the damn thing open like all year. Like it's these two segment inciting days are. I don't know a, a single positive revolving around either of them. However, the Ducks continue to do well. They just got a commitment from Washington transfer Jabbar Muhammad, which is probably one of the most important pieces outside of the quarterback position that they have addressed. Uh, with Kyrie Jackson leaving, he was their number one cornerback last year. Jabbar conceivably will will slot right in there and, and take over that position. Um, yeah, uh, just kind of like overall looking at the class, you know, it wouldn't be surprised if the Ducks land like one or two more guys. But I mean, this thing was pretty much like tied together back in December, and now it's just all been kind of about adding accents and, and kind of cherries on top, right? Yeah, and I think I think maybe unexpected cherries in some ways. Like you talked about Jabbar Muhammad there. You know, we're we're not on scholarship watch. We're not those guys. We're not looking at the depth chart months ahead of time, wow. scheduling out. Fuck, <laughs> 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 that was it's funny. Um, scheduling out, you know, where guys are going to be and what position groups. Have, you know, we, we look at needs, I think, generally. And I think we probably would agree that they needed to maybe add one safety and maybe one cornerback. But what they've done, um, adding a safety in Kobe Savage and then adding three cornerbacks now, Jabbar being kind of the crown jewel. I mean, the group's going to look entirely different next year. And and you know, when the transfer portal opens back up, and you know, after springtime, I wouldn't be surprised if you know a guy transfers out. I I like how the Ducks just kind of you know usually when you're looking at like a team's roster with the transfer portal, you like at, look at, at the one one person that maybe bolstered that position, and the Ducks are like, let's just bring in everyone. 
like right. corner and like like have at it. And that's almost what they did a little bit last year too with with some of the defensive back positions. I mean, they had brought in like Kyrie, they had brought in like Taishim Johnson. Um, it was just a bunch of new guys who ended up kind of like filtering out and you know, it was better defensive back play this year than it was the year before. Obviously, it still wasn't as good as it needed to be in in key situations, but um yeah, that was that was kind of like the one hole on that defense last year and I'm not going to more it seems more injury proof now, yeah. Correct. I I I have no idea if it's going to be any better <laughs> than it was last year just because it's I, I think this era of college football is probably the hardest to project how good a team will be year in, year out. I mean, like, you know, the Ducks are going to be good, but it's just, we don't know who's going to be playing at these positions. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it, I guess it, on the, on the, on the flip side there, I, I, I didn't expect them to add as many DBs maybe as they did. Is there a position again, just kind of from a bird's eye view that you maybe thought they would go harder at and haven't yet at least. In terms, as I guess, as it pertains to specifically like next year's team, that's an interesting one because, like, I think they have about two decades worth of receivers like on the roster and coming. Yeah, I think they got enough receivers. Yeah, they they have their next conceivably three three years scheduled out at quarterback with Dylan Gabriel and then Dante Moore, maybe four years depending on Moore's development. Mm -hmm. Um, Running. Running back, you look at it and you go like, okay, right now they have Jordan James. They have no winning. Like, they're probably pretty solid there. It probably wouldn't be bad to get another piece or two there. But, like, other than that, like, I mean, where did you want the Ducks to become, like, a force? It's probably in the front seven. And if you look at how they recruited this year, I mean, like, they like, it was, like, four- and five-star dudes, like, all over that front seven. Um, yeah, I mean, like, like – yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, I just not to jump in, but I think you're right. You start like going to the positions like, well, they kind of got dudes at every spot. Linebacker for me was the one where we talk about the D line a lot and they've added a ton of names and they have some depth there and some proven guys. Last year at outside linebacker, it was a lot of true freshmen and they looked good. Uh, this year you look at it, it's going to be those same guys. And then at inside linebacker, it's Boston and Justin Jacobs, who I think is a great one to punch. That's also a position that is in the middle of stuff a lot and there's injuries. Uh, a plenty usually. And so I think when you look at that group, I, I just was surprised they didn't add one more proven veteran and they still could. Right. But it's a lot of, it's going to be a lot of young guys on the two deep, which I think landing likes, but I, I just, I was expecting one more guy there and I don't think it's bad, but. That's, that's actually a good point you brought up because, you know, I, I think when like Bassa announces his return, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like one that's like start sending the parade down like seventh Ave, you quite like, like when a Bo Nix announces he's coming back, but like, that's a very needed piece. Just, just as you said, there's I mean, not that's a whole the, lot of that's the Bo Nix yeah. of the defense, right? Yeah. There, there's not a lot of hold. There's just not a whole lot of proven depth behind there. And so I, I think just to be able to kind of have like that guy hold over that position and then to have Jacobs who was injured for part of this year, but he was, you know, the transfer guy last year, he was one of like the I five ten guys that I wrote about back in, in the summer who had very high expectations. Um, yeah. Like, I, I think that's, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like those two are two very good players and will be effective for the ducks, but it's just how thin is that behind them? Yeah. And I mean, they have some other young guys that played last year that won't be freshman. Devin Jackson comes to mind. Right. Um, so I, I don't think it's a concern. I, I, again, I just, I thought they would have added someone, but maybe they're baking on Justin Jacobs kind of, Almost given that it was sort of a lost year with injuries, I don't think he ever necessarily really got up to speed and had enough games to really show that. 
I wonder if they're kind of saying, hey, this is almost like our offseason acquisition is maybe just having this guy healthy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's hard to know. And I, again, I, Dan Lanning said it on, he was, you know, on some presser or some show the other day. He said, as soon as we get you in here, we're going to try to find better places and better pieces to replace you with. Right. And that's kind of, you know, proven to be true so far. This would, this is going to take some reporting, but I, I really want like a full behind the scenes, just like locker room dynamics of what it's like with NIL and money for like the non-star star guys, you know, just like what, you know, if you're a transfer guy coming in, like, is, are there expectations that you, you hit certain benchmarks that you perform certain, like, you know, it's just like, I, I don't think we've quite fully seen like what the the look of money in the locker room is quite like and especially when you get into spring and it's like depth chart positions and like people are like figuring like who's going to transfer out who's going to stick in like I, I just think that's fascinating and we're three three four years now into the nil era um and it feels like it's still almost as wild west as it was when all this shit first started out yeah it'll be interesting in the next two three four years when more reporters than just the national guys like a Bruce Feldman are able to have some access to that. I mean, someone like yourself, right? When are you going to be able to get access? Maybe sooner than later, hopefully, right? But when are you going to be able to get the access to find out, okay, say it's a Jeffrey Bossa. What is the communication like between him and uh, the program in terms of look like you could go pro and you probably would get a chance somewhere. You could also come back and bolster that. Here's, you know, a little incentive to come back. What does that look like? Does he and, ask and, and, and who, is that who just who out there? Yeah, like who initiates that conversation? Is it is it like somebody like comes up to you and is like, I know someone who likes you, but like. <laughs> yeah, right. My friend over there thinks you're cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I won't tell you which friend. You got to just get it right. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating because, I, again, like. Bass is probably not a guy who's going to go on and have like a long NFL career, but like his actual value to this Oregon Ducks team, like was very high in, in that certain leverage and position. So real quick, cause we haven't talked about them at all. It's understandable that there's less excitement around Oregon state football right now. That being said, they have done well to add some pieces. You know, they haven't recruited at a particularly high level, but that wasn't what Jonathan Smith is doing. It's, it's not like they ever, yeah, it's not like that's ever been like that. Right. But to, and who knows how good these guys are going to end up being, but to get SEC guys into a program that kind of doesn't really have much by way of a, of a set schedule these next few years, and certainly not in terms of a set schedule with exciting matchups on it, I think was, was impressive. And we absolutely on the site owe that some coverage, and I think are just trying to figure out the right way to kind of yeah. dive into that. When there's a lot of guys that just aren't known, I mean, they don't have completely new looking quarterback room. They've added some weapons. They've added some great front seven pieces. So I'm excited to dive into that when the opportunity does arise. And of course, they're not going to be the headline like Oregon is, and that's just that's how they've been, and that's how it's going to continue to be. That being said, like I do think Oregon State spring practice turns into like an instantly just fascinating study yeah for like that month of you know like e e e like i even wonder if like they keep any of like the same this was the team we were last year dynamics or if they just basically kind of go in and just like hey like new coach new conference new era like we're we're blowing this whole thing up and starting from scratch like i yeah i, I think that should definitely be something that we cover pretty uh creatively 
uh, shoot, I was going to say come a few months from now, but spring practice really kind of opens up in about a month here. And then these are the times when you're glad you're not on traditional beat because do you feel ready to start football again? Like in a um, meaningful way where you're at practice I mean my, every my, day? My, my bank account might, but like, like right. mentally, mentally I'm not there. That And so that, that gets into a point that I also kind of wanted to get into, because I, you had mentioned earlier, like landing on a podcast, like we've seen him in the last couple of weeks. Like he was, he did like, you know, 30 minutes on Rosillo, um, kind of doing like some of the national rounds. And I, whenever I see that, I just wonder like, how do they schedule this out? Because like these dudes seem like, especially during the recruiting portion like that, that it's just like, go, 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 go. Um, like I'm burnt out. Like how do these coaches not do it? Maybe, maybe it helps when you're getting eight, $9 million a year. <laughs> like you're building a national title team, but right. um, I, I would, I would be fascinated just to learn. Like there is science that says you like it, it, you're more effective if you're properly rested and take a break. And like all these coaches believe in like analytics and science and all that, but like how much do they take into that? How much do they take into account of that with themselves? Cause like at some point you gotta get burnt out. Right. That's a good lead for, uh, for if you ever get the, the Dan Lanning insider, get to follow him around for any portion of a day, that's a perfect right. way to lead it. Um, but look, this and is 259 this, Dan naps, <laughs> right? For five minutes. Yeah. Oh, that'd be um, a great question, Dan. When's the last time you took a nap? I'm sure it was more recently than we think, because he's probably fitting in that that the oh the, those, anytime, those little like five minute micro naps, like yeah, when he's over the, on the, over the course of the day, I actually average <laughs> right because he's he's driving to recruits' houses and stuff. Um, anyways, it's basketball season actually, right? And pull um, us out of this football. <laughs> we're entering a, a fun. I wouldn't say it's always fun. It can be fun. It can be exciting. A certainly dramatic portion of the calendar in that regard where resume talk starts to seem a little bit more apt and uh, we can start kind of forecasting what, what, what this postseason might look like. It was a pretty, again, a pretty exciting action packed weekend of hoops in this uh, state. Yeah. And it kind of threw a wrench in everything, didn't it? Because like Oregon State completely wrecked Arizona's like national value. Shout out Jordan Pope, one of the better buzzer beaters we've seen in a few years. Just the the arc on that was woo. And then Arizona comes in and beats Oregon pretty handily. So now you have Arizona's hobbled. The Ducks have basically a resume that needs them to win the Pac-12 tournament now. And then or, you got, or, or yeah, or or, or, or like win, or win yeah. Should, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, as I've texted you like over the last couple of weeks, like I still think Oregon has like potential to be a pretty damn good team, but like they've gone watching watching that Arizona game and then the Arizona State game, like with them going like the two big lineup, it has so drastically kind of changed the flow of that offense that I think they're kind of in a spot where like that either either needs to like completely be the right decision and make it work, or they might just be too far down the road to like, it it just might be lost. Right. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's start with Oregon. I I think they can make it work. And I I think people are too swift to kind of bring down the guillotine on this whole thing. If you will, it doesn't look great. I, I didn't, I was sitting next to Jared Denny um, 
at the game and we were talking to basically the whole time. It's like, why is DOR still getting so many minutes? Because you have, uh, you, you have Biddle and you have Dante and yes, you can start them together, but pull one quicker and then, and then stagger them. There wasn't much staggering until later in the game. And you've got Kwame who's proven, you know, he can play a small ball five, but DOR is still getting these minutes and it just, it doesn't look very together right now. You watched on TV. I was there. They end up scoring 78 points, which is right about their average for the year. And they're, I think, still the second best offense statistically in the Pac-12. It looked like a slog to get to 78. And most of that came at the end when the game was out of hand. It never felt like they had a chance in that game. What did you see on TV? Because it, it just looked like they were grinding grinding teeth to get buckets. Yeah, like one, and this is obviously going to be something that comes with time because he's been out for so long. But I'm not quite sure like what Biddle does for them quite yet. because like. He has more uh, versatility to his offensive game than Dante does, but off, but also he's they're not just going to like feed him in the post like they do Dante. So he, you know he's kind of a guy who can hit a three if he wants to, but then you just have essentially you have two seven footers that don't have great hands, and that like that's the biggest thing for me with Dante is um, I think Jackson and some of the other guards have done like a pretty good job of feeding him the ball, and like let's face it, like there's few guys in the league that can effectively guard Dante throughout the like the course of the game but it's just like it almost feels like old school NBA style where it's like feed the big man the game kind of slows down and he makes a lot of really good plays but there's also like just like a lot of like loose balls or like um hand-eye coordination things where you know the ball ends up goes flying or like it just takes some of the flow out and um you know, if, if we could start seeing him being able to like draw like a double team there and be able to like, you know, feed the ball back out, like this is a much better three point shooting team than he's had around him in the past. But like right now it's still very, it's, it seems very like almost like they're reading the manual of like, all right, throw it down low. <laughs> you know, it's like clunky. It's a bit archaic. Yeah. And I just was always surprised when they were able to get points unless it came off of turnovers. They The only time that they made a run that it seemed like, okay, they could I, I suppose, you know, po- you know, pose some sort of threat here to Arizona was when they, you know, it was early in the second half, probably 17, 18 minute mark. They started going this run where they just kept forcing turnovers. And that's when Keyshawn went down and got hurt. And he's, I mean, undoubtedly done for the season, I think. I mean, I don't see a world in which he came, comes back. And so it's like another injury and a guy that was actually playing really well defensively at a spot where they hadn't been playing well defensively. I mean, it's just that it's just brutal. I, I don't, it, it was hard to not come away given that they weren't expected to win that game. It was so hard to come away thinking, you know, highly of the, of, of where the team is right now. How, how do you, how do you think Chelstad's roles changed a bit since Dante came back? Cause like, I feel like we're seeing the ball with in Kusnard's hands more often and Chelstad's maybe a less aggressive than, I mean, like, for much of that game, like especially if you're looking at the stat sheet, it looked like he was pretty non-existent. Is that just like, is that just the consequence of you have another guy who is very ball dominant and Dante back on the floor, and then one of the guards gets the ball less? Like, like what did you see in kind of like his role on Saturday? I think that's part of it. I think more than anything, though, is I think it's all a little bit just kind of maybe catching up to Shellstad and the physicality, the games twice a week. People seem to maybe know his game a little bit more now. I mean, he's just not really getting to the spots at all the way he was early in the year. Um, they're playing some better defenses, uh, 
but yeah, I mean, it's hard to ignore the fact that his three worst games of the year essentially have come against the three best teams and best defenses that Oregon's played. And so I think part of it is, I think Dane just trusts Jermaine with the ball a little yeah. bit more right now. And it's hard to argue that because Jermaine, he's had lapses of, you know, not amazing defensive effort, but offensively he's he's it's it's rare that you you see a game where he's not in the top two top three scoring for the ducks the other thing i was going to ask you like what what did the atmosphere like it seemed like on tv because it was it was rowdy there and it was one of the games that they hadn't sectioned off areas of matt night which is crazy to even say out loud um it it was it was loud it, it, it was it was fascinating because it looked like a good atmosphere. You know, I've been to most of the Oregon Arizona games under Altman, and like that's usually like that and UCLA are usually like the best home games of the season. Um, and I thought it presented well on TV. So that so then it was funny to then see, you know, basically every media member come out with their like this game was a disaster. Um, um, from an ops perspective, um, obviously I wasn't there, but you know they it seems like they had the football team come down and uh, get their shout out. Like while Bartholomew, excuse me, (laughs) that's a bad name for a list. While Keyshawn was down (laughs) on the, while Keyshawn was down on the ground or the fact that the team left after that. And yeah, I I can understand that a lot of that was a bad look, but from a, from a national perspective, like it looked good on TV, you know, like a Fox game, like two, you know, classic schools going against each other. Um, Aaron Goldsmith was on the call and I think he calls great, college basketball games like it was it was good from that perspective i just i wish oregon would have showed out a little bit better yeah now arizona was a team that had not lost back-to-back games um under uh under this coach and i love that stat that you had in your your uh what was it their margin of victory after a loss was like 17 points like holy yeah good luck (laughs) so you know this this is all preceded by oregon state um, two nights prior, you mentioned the Jordan Pope uh, buzzer beater, but you know it was four and weekend for Oregon State, um, a homestand for both teams, and some pretty damn big wins. Uh, before no pun intended, any, but before nice, nicely done. Before we get any further into this, it shall be noted that Shane Hoffman had been trying to do a Jordan Pope profile for couple weeks at this point well um, i tried last year too and then it just never yeah, yeah i mean um and uh the powers that be um just didn't get back to him until uh pope became the national player of the year and then all of a sudden he's on well it sounds and, like and sour you, grapes shane and it's it's completely because it is sour grapes because you would have killed that <laughs> well and you, you the way you phrase it there almost made it seem as as if they they did get back to me eventually and, and they didn't after repeated um follow-ups um but that's neither here nor there. Um, Jordan Pope's a baller. I'll be writing about him later this week um, with what resources I have, which are limited. So you won't, won't <laughs> learn much about him that you don't already know, folks. Um, again, ridiculous. They are sour grapes. Keep, keep, keep selling, man. Like you're, like we're we're just moving subscriptions <laughs> here. Man, he's good. He's he's always been fun to watch. He's um, and Bill though too, man. I was glad you did that little story on him because. Um, they have quite the one-two punch, and both of those guys are sophomores. And the fact that they stuck around this year makes me think that there's a chance they stick around moving forward. Now, who knows, right? Um, but that's a that's a good foundation. And I'm not going to say that I think the Oregon State men's team is all that amazing, but there was two good wins. I, would, I wouldn't want to play them in the Pac-12 tournament. 
Sure, right. And at this point, I don't know who you want to play because the Pac-12 is a mess. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's um, a good point. All that being said, and I said this as we entered the season, I said this before last weekend, I think the Oregon State women's basketball team is damn good. Yeah, no kidding. Like, it was, it was one thing to kind of, as you texted me like two days before, or no, it was the morning of the Colorado game. You're like, they're going to win this game. Like, you know, I, like you've, you've been following that team pretty closely and obviously sat down with Ruick at the start of the year and kind of have had a little kind of inkling on, on the progression of that team, but they were the better team that entire game. And it was a, it was a close win, but it was like a thorough win. But then for them to come back like two days later and then just beat the complete like barn doors off of Utah. Um, I won't pretend like I know that like the women's college basketball scene enough like nationally to like throw this out there, but it kind of seems like they should maybe be considered to be a legit, not, I don't know, national championship threat, but like this is a team that looks like it's got like elite eight or final four potential. Right. Well, that's what, that's what Ruick was saying. He's like, we're playing and sometimes beating teams that you all think are going to be final four contenders. So why can't we be that? I'm paraphrasing. Right. But that was essentially his quote. Uh, the Pac-12 was stacked. I mean, that Utah team, a legit number 16, maybe should have been higher because they the only team uh, in Pac-12 played to have downed UCLA, which was uh, at one point number two in the nation. You've got USC, who's been hovering around top 10. Stanford's obviously been in the top 10. Um, I'm forgetting someone else, but you still have Colorado, Utah. Um, and now Oregon State obviously is in the top 20, I think at 18. Yeah, I mean, so so here's the other thing, right? And I don't think I'm breaking news to most people here, but I'm sure some people didn't know this. Um, the Sweet 16 and, and Elite Eight, part of that's going to be played in Portland. And so there's a very good chance that Oregon State, should they make it to the Sweet 16, which which at this point seems viable, um, could be playing in front of home fans all the way up until potentially the Final Four. So I, I think it's it's still a little early to, to look that far ahead, but I, I think it's time to start considering that this team could make a big run. Um. The my big takeaway from this, and I kind of wrote this at the end of my thoughts, and this kind of relates to Ruick too, because obviously Oregon State had two down years before this, and it's it's something that the Ducks are in right now with the women and, and Kelly Graves' teams being down, and Oregon State men's team was down for a few years, and there's always this we love the redemption stories, and that's why like this Ruick one and this Oregon State team is so great right now, is because they they kind of came through that adversity of the last two seasons and they've allowed like the coaching to kind of like come through. Like they believed in their coach at one point and they stuck with them and you know, they're, they're getting some progress from that. And that's just, it, it's almost like you're able to see into like a different world of what, like what Oregon could have been without the money. Like, you know, if, if the expectations aren't so high at Oregon, like Mark Helfrich probably doesn't get fired after the 2015 season or, you know, the, there's been in the last few weeks some calls for like maybe Graves isn't just connecting and it's time for them to move on. And this was a coach who brought them to a final four and multiple elite eights. And it, it's just, it's just interesting to see the test case at Oregon state of seeing a couple coaches who have been there for a long time, who were allowed to struggle and who have been able to kind of pull their teams up by the bootstraps and get at least back into from the men's basketball case, uh, being a competent team and in the women's basketball case, one of the best teams in the country. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I do think you mentioned Graves there. I didn't, you know, I'm not super well sourced on it, but would you be at all shocked now if he does get canned at the end of the year? I think I I I don't think, especially with them moving to a new conference and his contract, like I, I 
I think uh, he'll probably have another season at least. But you do, then you get into interesting. The, yeah, but then you get into the Big Ten. Um, I think next year would be like the complete hot seat. But like this year, I, I think it's just I think it's still too soon, considering like what they've done and how effective he's been on the recruiting trail in the past. Um, but yeah, it's obviously not good. I mean, like I, in my mailbag a couple of weeks ago, I kind of gave like, the, you know, give them time, they'll figure this out. And they went out and got just lambasted again. So it's, it's definitely been a really bad year, but we'll see. What, what do you think? I just don't know what you point to at this point, because they're not even in these games. Yeah. And they weren't even in games against like Portland at the start of the year. And I understand that they've had industries and they, they, they lose their starting point guard in game one of the season. But you look at the cross the way at Altman, like you want to talk about injuries, like these down years for Altman have still been 21 seasons. And then you look at the Oregon state women's team. I mean, they're starting their, their entire point guard rotation is fr- true freshmen who have been yeah. balling out. Right. So yeah, he's recruited. Some of the players have sort of panned out. Others have just left. It still seems like they're riding the success of those Sabrina teams, and it's 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 tough when your only really deep March success came with one core of players. Now he had some success, excuse me, success with Tahina and Sabrina, not Sabrina, excuse me, uh, Sedona and those teams um, briefly during the March Madness, uh, the COVID March Madness year. But it's been a, they all a brutal watch, and they yeah. all left, and they followed the guy who was you know trying to take some credit, right? So it's like, and, and then you know. Uh, they're they're sectioning off it, it, huge portions of the stadium for these women's games now. When I was a freshman and sophomore at Oregon, I mean they were sold out no matter who they were playing, and the crowd didn't sit down. And you haven't seen anything like that recently. So I don't know, you know, maybe they keep them around, but should they? I don't know because you said Oregon's a school that that chops this stuff down pretty quickly. It's 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 interesting. Like looking at that at the perspective too of programs that before like before Graves, like Oregon's basketball didn't have this we have this expectation of we have to be a top ten team every year, kind of. And that and you know, that's kind of the lens that you look at like this team through. Well, and probably because, top twenty five. Yeah, yeah. Or or top twenty five. Above five hundred. But they're eleven and eleven right now. But what I'm saying is like this this was a bad program before Graves took over and the school didn't care about it. The fans didn't care about it. Like, you know, you talked about your freshman year and how it was full. Like that didn't exist before Graves. So it's kind of like you're doing like this wane of like Oregon didn't have a track track record of like having any of that before Graves. And so it's like, yeah, that guy might have been the one. It's, it's almost like you could look, you could almost look at him like Cristobal. Like Cristobal might not be like the perfect coach for Oregon right now, but he was the one who got like the new era started. He was the one who like got them like going on the recruiting trail and made them kind of more of a like known in, in that realm, which has then had led to the success of Dan Lanning. Like maybe that's how Graves has ended up dude in, in Oregon history for the women's side. Yeah, I think you make a good point there because I don't think that he's an awful coach or that he deserves, you know, the door to be shut on him on the way out. That I know I butcher that saying, but Right. Um, uh, but yeah, like I think maybe it's time to consider going in a different direction. Perhaps I don't. I just it doesn't. You don't really have much to point to right now. And again, I, I don't think anyone's going to forget how magical those few years were. But I, I do wonder. Yeah, like at one point, especially moving conferences, do you look at that as like, hey, we have a chance to really start over here in a lot of different ways? So let me ask you a question. 
if Kelly Graves is still riding off the coattails of a very successful season from four years ago, how's True Detective currently doing? <laughs> what a fucking transition. Holy shit. <laughs> um, so um, here's what I'll start out by saying this. that The third episode that just came out was my least favorite of the three. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't dislike it. Or I guess I, I liked it less than, than last year because I thought the second episode was really strong. Um, I didn't dislike it, but I had trouble sleeping. Yeah, yeah, that was, it was that, scary, was, really that was fucking scary, man. That that was that was a creepy episode. That's actually what you you texted me. I had like ten minutes left, and you're like, "Man, that was spooky." I was like, I and yeah, then you hadn't even seen the the craziest parts of it so far. Yeah, um, yeah, I thought this episode moved a little bit slower because I think with the first two, you're still kind of like totally like wrapped in like the scenery and like the new story and like, Hey, it's dark all the time. And they're in Alaska. And, and now like you, you have all of that. And so I think a lot of it relies on your relationship uh, with the characters. And um, like, I don't particularly like spending a whole lot of time with like Jodie Foster's character. She's kind of a dick. Uh, and and <laughs> yeah. I'm still not, and I'm still not quite sure. Like, you know, obviously her and, um, Oh, shoot. Who, what's the name of the trooper? No, um, no, Navarro. Navarro. Yeah, like obviously, like her and Navarro have a history, and like this, the series kind of is going to center around like those two, like detecting this case. But like, I need to know like a little bit more about like them two together, other than the fact that they just like they're prickly against each other, and like you know, it's just like I, I don't really. Quite well, at least care they about started the show. Detective, it. correct, but it's just. This was, yeah, it was just like, I need some action to start happening or, or some like bang up detective work because it's just kind of like, you're still in this, mm. like, all right, let's go figure this out. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I thought the second episode was, was so strong as they started to do the detecting. Right. And there was just less of that, this episode, I felt there was a little bit, right. And they started to kind of piece a few more things together and there's a pacing to this whole thing. And that's what makes mystery shows and, and, and whatnot so intriguing. Um, but there was just stretches, like to your point, that I I <laughs> didn't find very fun to watch. Like they do, there was that one scene where she goes to their. They have that brief ceremony for the, I think, for the child that passed away, and there's these just like monotonous pans and like this this heavy breathing in the background with these low drums. And I was like, oh my god, like get me out of this scene right now. Just like super <laughs> uncomfortable watching. And, and I mean, maybe that's what they were going for. But then you have like this heavy supernatural ghost element and these characters who aren't telling each other the truth, the truth. I mean, characterized perfectly by that uh, unreliable narrator scene where they, they're talking about the old case they worked. Yep. And so you have that. And, and, and I'm just kind of getting stuck in like the mud a little bit here where I, I can't, well, here's a, here's a good question. At the end of the episode, the man that was in the hospital that is missing two legs now, he's missing one arm, he's blind. He extremely creepily comes back to life for a second, essentially, and talks to Navarro, says, you know, your mom's waiting for you. Uh, but no one else was there. It was just her. Do you think that actually happened, or is that just a figment of her imagination? Yeah, I was... <sighs> I feel like it's almost like projecting like a little bit of like maybe her, she's making that connection and that's like the visual you get, but like it, it does take. Yeah. I mean, that, that's like three episodes in a row that have like, have had like some supernatural element and like, 
they're also like kind of like vaguely like ref you know referring to it like throughout the episodes of like you know I, I forget what it was in the first episode but it was like you know that the dead are here but you know some of them have different or like you you see visions it just depends on like what they want or, or like what the right and and are. then but also she's uh, saying like don't confuse uh, those visions with mental illness right or or right. Like something like that yeah so like it's um yeah like I, I think they do a pretty good maybe confusing job of just like painting all of that like i i imagine there's just like a, a big confluence of like stressful case confusion maybe a little bit of like paranoia supernatural elements like you're you're kind of in in an area that like speaks of spirits um but like i i can't like it was almost like when they, when that guy, when they thawed him out originally and like his arm broke off and he started screaming, like, was like, was that imagined or was that real? And then he ends up in the hospital and then you have that vision of him. Like, I couldn't imagine that, like them actually making you think that that was really happening. Right. With the part in the hospital. That, that was, that, that was a lot of rambling there, but like, that was a really, very, very confusing episode. <laughs> No, I know what you mean, though. Like, and, and you start talking about Navarro there. Like, she's had the most stuff going on where she sees the flashback of the kid and then she's telling the story about her mom. And then she's been, like, driving before and weird stuff's happened in both the last two episodes. And the one that I'm still, like, completely mystified at and didn't understand, maybe I miss it. But she picks up the orange and then she throws the orange out on the ice and then it rolls back. And then she just kind of shrugs it off. And like ghost and takes a call like what the hell was that did i miss something like why was there an orange like so so again it's just i don't know what's happening i I would prefer for this show i still think it will be to be based in in reality and and a real case to figure out um but there's a lot of other stuff to parse through and remember i didn't watch the first season but i my wife watched it i remember kind of like seeing you know snippets of episodes wasn't there kind of like this like creepy like supernatural element in the first season that ended up being like you know obviously there was like a reason for it like wasn't like didn't they believe everyone was being killed by some like devilish thing or sort of i mean there's definitely like a warship light sort of presence for the the killer in in that um there's just weird stuff spiritual ritual whatever like demonic um but yeah, again, there still is like some fabric of a real case. Like they show at the end, they find Annie Kotak's phone. And <laughs> I love when they find like uh, like a phone in these shows that it just happened, like to open the phone and it's immediately on the exact video they need. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, but that video is like, she seemed like she was in some sort of underground, cave or, like, or some... ca- ice cave or something like do you have any any theories about what could actually be happening on on the on the real case detective side of things? I, I have no clue. <laughs> I haven't heard this one, and I've listened to some other stuff. I think that whatever she was in in that video maybe was underneath Salal Station because she started to say like I found it, um, and she we know she had been visiting Salal because she was going along with that person that at least that one time because she she ended up having the relationship with the guy that's still missing. I'm, I, I keep forgetting the names. Was it, it Clark? I think so. Um, the, 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 the thing that I, and maybe this is why I generally have not been like a huge, like mystery genre fan is like, I don't, I don't know how to like watch these. Am I supposed to be taking notes? Like, especially with it being like a one season, <laughs> like, 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 a, yeah. like a one season thing. It's okay. 
if this is going to be one season, there's probably not like a single name action or event that happens that doesn't have some, there, there's nothing that's going to be shown on screen that doesn't have like reason or purpose, unless they're just trying to like throw people off the case. And so it's like, God damn, do I have to like write down all these names or, <laughs> you know, like look for No, everyone. I'm glad you said that because you're right. It's either thrown at you intentionally or intentionally to then distract you from the stuff they mean. You know, I'm one that likes to, you know, sometimes before the episode starts, I take a, a walk around the block, if you will. And so I sit down and I'm watching these episodes and I'm confused like for 90% of the episode about what's important yeah. and what's not. Um, but again, I, I do think like I'm going to stake it now. Like I think there's something underneath the station, Salal Station. And I think that's because you saw in the first episode when they go to Salal Station, there's a figure that darts past the screen that was like seemingly still in there. So I, I think that might make sense. And it looks like some cave or some ice cave or something. So I'm going to put that one out there. I think it's probably unlikely, but who knows? Yeah, I'm still interested. Like I'm, I, it's at this point, it will be an appointment viewing for me. Like I'm, you know, we were in, yeah, I got, Reno got, got we, 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 we were in Reno. I mean, you didn't with Barry, but excuse me. Um, yeah, right. That, well, it's <laughs> funny because Barry got to this point where it's like, what is happening? And it's very yeah. similar of just kind of these visions, right? Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. It's like that was about when you dropped off. Is when kind of like <laughs> yeah, I very, can't do it anymore, man. Um, so I might have to go back and re. I might have to go back and rewatch Barry at this point too, because like that, yeah, that was that was so jarring as it happened. Um, okay, so I'll keep watching True Detective. We'll keep talking about it, um, but I I want to like end on this kicker here. This last week, has this been the most amount of millionaires that you've been in touch with while reporting the story that you got coming out next week? Oh. We don't want a little tease. This is a tease thing. Yeah, that's a really broad tease, too. Probably. I didn't I never even thought about it that way. I think yeah. more about the the pedigree of these people rather than their bank accounts. Oh, okay. Um, so so is this has this been your most famous week of phone conversations? Most like yeah, I don't really know what would come close. I'm still pretty. Yeah. Anyways, Shane's got a Shane's got a, a good one coming next week, folks. Um, yep, a good one that I need to start working on. Yeah, <laughs> you got the reporting. Like that's that's the, actually it helped out that uh, uh, I thought signing day was this week. Um, so you've yeah, a, that was a relief got, to say the least. Yeah, you, you've gotten. I thought uh, I thought you were going to be upset that I was like Shane. We got to push the story a week, and instead I. You almost sent me roses. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I should have. Um, I didn't. I didn't eat, eat anything great this week. But you had a food thing you wanted to touch on. Oh yeah. So we're gonna start because we obviously love food and we love going out and eating in Portland. Like that's one of like the best parts of living in Portland is is how great the culinary scene is here. And there are a lot of chefs and cooks who work their asses off to provide all that. And they all have stories too. So one thing that we want to start doing here is highlighting um, kind of like that story that Shane wrote back in um, August, that Ricky Bella story. We want to just start kind of highlighting that scene and we're not going to all of a sudden become like a food sub stack, but I think there's a lot of overlap between people who are fans of sports and fans of uh, food. And so if, if you've been to a great restaurant in the last month or anytime recently, or have a place that you want to give a shout out to, please let us know in the comments or in our email or on Twitter. Yeah, just, just a place um, that you'd like to learn more about even, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like these don't have to be 
you know, yeah, like even if you eat somewhere and you're like, how do they make this one very specific like food item that's awesome or tell us more about it or where they learn to cook? Like that's what we kind of want to dive into. So uh, if you have any recommendations, let us know. Do you have one? Are you excited? Is there anything you're excited to do? Mm. No. Okay. Well, instead, tease what you've got coming content wise or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Sell yourself somehow, man. All right. So we have a new i5 thoughts up today. Um, kind of dives into signing, uh, kind of organ signing day. Goes into the history of history, Chris Ball's greatest recruits. We also have a fast break coming on. We're, we're thinking Thursday for that this week, Shane. Well, I guess we could do Wednesday because signing day isn't on Wednesday, it turns out. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. So, we could run that Wednesday. And then we're going to have finally, I know I've said this on the pod a couple of times, but I'm actually curious. Uh, we're going to have the start of our uh, Big Ten or Big Ten introduction series. Uh, what, what did I say it in our uh, notes? Uh, the following, well, you always remember your first. Hello, Michigan. It, it, or it was something like uh, yeah. falling in love is a beautiful thing. I don't, I don't yeah. remember something like that. It was good though. It, it worked. It, it really, it really, it it sung on paper. It's a little. little it did. Um, but yeah, and then you're, uh, thank you're you. going to Sorry, Eugene, or you you will have gone down to Eugene by the time this is posted. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sitting down with uh, Oregon's uh, new lacrosse coach today. Um, Lacrosse is a, a massively grown sport in the country, and I think it's a fascinating time for Oregon to be hiring a new coach as they head into the Big Ten, where that sport's taken a little bit more seriously than it is out here. So, um, and there's a lot of people that have asked for the sort of miscellaneous sports. I, I, I don't mean that word as a as a, a put down, but just the ones that we don't hear about as much. So, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back next week.